think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And either they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 95 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 96th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. I'm oh, Nathan Rainville. And uh, yeah, so eventful uh, eventful two weeks here since our last episode. Yeah, you know, big day. Big day in Ottawa, Paul, or in Canadian politics. Indeed. Big day um, in Ottawa. Yes, a very big day in Ottawa. So uh, in the last couple of weeks, of course, there's been more of the we stuff that we'll, we'll get into presently. Uh, there is also uh, the finance minister... Uh, well, I say abruptly. Um, abrupt, it was abrupt enough. It was abrupt enough. Uh, resigning uh, Monday evening. Uh, that would be the uh, 17th un- well, of August. Well, Ottawa was under tornado watch. And Indeed. we were worried about toonie-sized hail, according to some of the weather forecasts the, I read. The real tornado, it turned out, was politics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, also, yeah, so Parliament's been prorogued as well. That's the, the third the Another third real twister. Very good. That's you know I gotta give you credit on that one. That was very stupid, but uh, yeah, that's fine. That's good. I enjoyed that. Um, yeah. So let's start with the Wii thing. So, um, the big I would say the biggest development of the last couple of weeks is that uh, Wii Charity decided to register to lobby. Yes. Yes. As often happens when people start looking at organizations that aren't registered to lobby and look at their pattern of contacts with the government and start saying, hmm. That kind of looks like a lot of lobbying. <laughs> then they're like, "Oh shoot, you know what? We just we just plum forgot." And then uh, yes, yeah, so they uh, they registered with the uh, lobbying commissioner, and they are now in the the registry of lobbyists. And you can take a gander at their sixty five uh, registered communications um, that they've filed since January of twenty nineteen. Yes. Yes, and just to begin that conversation is. I find it a little hard to believe that that was the first time they ever did it. Uh, what do you mean, the first time they ever did what? Register or lobbied was in twenty nineteen. Indeed. We yeah, I mean we don't. I, I think know. they kind of picked an. Well, of course we don't because they're not. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But the you're right. I mean, the organization has been around forever. Yeah, and it seems like they kind of picked a a likely cutoff date. But and, uh, it, it's all about that. it's all about the twenty percent rule, right? We yes. know that they could have been lobbying for years whilst claiming the twenty percent rule yes. for whatever reason, and I, I don't think it's really obvious. They picked January twenty nineteen. Yeah, and I think it's as, arbitrary as like that's the last two years. Yeah, yeah it's as, not really any more sophisticated than that. As when they've decided to backdate their registration to it, who yes. knows why it could have been for administrative re- regions that their reasons that their emails they couldn't find the emails beyond that. Sure. Um, but we also know that, if I'm not mistaken, the Mitui organization got money under the Harper government, albeit significantly less. Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, than the Trudeau government. Um, we don't know too, too much else than that. Um, and I don't think we ever will, frankly. It's not really possible no. to reconstruct communications with reporting public office holders going back. No, no, yeah. Decades. It's more just my point that it's just like a strangely arbitrary cutoff. Uh, 100%. January 2019 seems like... Anyway. But all that to say, there are two big points here. Wait, uh, can I can I just throw in one minor yeah, absolutely. point first? The thing that's always struck me about the Wii story and about looking at the Wii's patterns of engagement with the government is how very little of it is with Global Affairs Canada. And sort of the development side of GAC. Yes, which is ostensibly what they do. Yes. <laughs> we, I mean, it's, or maybe it's what they used to do, but as, as far as I've been able to determine, there has been no funding, really, except for maybe, yeah, like... Yeah, there was one deve- contract. Yeah, yes. but, like... And it was for, like, leadership training. Yeah, that's, that's what was, I mean. It was, like, in, actual, it was onshore, let's say. Actual ODA, official yeah. development assistance sort of funds, and actual funding of... A development project somewhere. It seems like the development charity has no relationship with the development arm of the government, which is actually sort of hilarious and bewildering. Um, my suspicion is it's because the work that um, they do just 100% doesn't align with how development work is done in this day and age. Yeah, or like it doesn't meet the standards. Yeah, it doesn't meet the standards. <laughs> and it's just a different type of development work in that it's of poor quality allegedly 
Uh, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> without going too far into that, because we yeah. don't actually know no, the that, details, yeah, just, just a... noting that I think is worthy, and no one's really talked about yes. um, the absence of relationship there, which perhaps, is where you would expect a development charity perhaps to be spending most of yes. their time lobbying. There's perhaps an interesting access to information request to file there. For sure. I, I might file that later. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the two big points other than that, which I, you're right, I think that that is an important and curious side question that I think deserves some scrutiny, uh, if for no other reason than, you know, curiosity. Um, the, the first big point is that, you know, we, we talked about these registrations that now go back uh, to two years, approximately, of calendar time. Um, so, Etienne, tell me, how long do you have to file uh, your... Uh, well, not you personally, because you're not a lobbyist and you're not registered <laughs> to lobby because you're under the five-year lobbying ban. But someone in an analogous position to yours that, that lobby, lobbies, uh, well, how much time do they have to file those monthly communication reports? Uh, it's monthly. Indeed. It's, oh, God, now you're quizzing me on the dates. I actually don't do this because I can't lobby. <laughs> um, but from what I recall, it's something like the 15th of the at any rate. I'm trying to remember what the deadlines are. It's my either point, the 15th or the 31st. My point, my point being... You, you do it every single month. Yes. And, and doing them late gets you in trouble. Yes. My point being that it, it is not usual for organizations to just sort of show up with a big slip of receipts and just no. say like, uh, yeah, this is our last two years of lobbying. Hope that's cool. <laughs> yeah. This is the same as your health insurance where like you need to file your receipt claim for the glasses you bought six months ago. Like, no, you you have a... Everything with the Lobbying Act is reasonably prescriptive. Yes. Um, upon signing a contract with intent to lobby, you have 10 days to um, register with the commissioner's office. Yes. Every month, you must file your monthly communication reports. Like, all of these things happen yeah, and, every and single... Yeah, and it's really worth saying that there are criminal penalties yes. for not doing so. <laughs> so, the Lobbying Act is very different than the Conflict of Interest uh, yes. Act. Where the Conflict of Interest Act, as we've noted, has penalties... Administrative small monetary penalties for the administrative the, stuff. The, the classic $500 yeah. fine. But for breaking the actual Conflict of Interest rules, there is nothing. It's just that you get your the, finger wagged at. Yes. Or you're, you have a finger wagged at you, rather. The Lobbying Act contemplates, I believe, up to two years in jail and fines up to yeah, $100,000. And we discussed that briefly in the last episode as to kind of what the, the upper range of fines and, and everything has been so far. Um, so, yeah, all that to say that it, it just strikes me that you may as well not have the law if you're just going to allow people to file two years of monthly communication reports with no... N just nothing like you're gonna be like that's cool thanks and then move on but here's the, here's the good. thing is here's what we don't know we don't know what the commissioner is doing in sure. response to this right? yeah and the commissioner is famously tight-lipped about any ongoing investigations or anything she's looking at so we will know when something happens if it does so the lobbying commissioner is not the same as the conflict of interest ethics commissioner who Mario Dion, who stands up, and I think he's mandated to, to do this, um, and basically announces an investigation is taking place. Yes. I don't know that the lobbying commissioner works on that. Model. No, not a bit. No, she she is um, very reticent to say. And she also has the ability to pass on an investigation to the RCMP. Yes, and as that, does the uh, commissioner. Yeah. Very similar in that way, um, but that sort but of they, freezes the investigation. Yes. And, and again, the RCMP don't announce when they're investigating. No, and, the, and neither of those commissioners can actually announce when they've done so. When, so you, when you they've kinda, handed it off to the RCMP. Yeah, so you yes. kind of have to look into the report-shaped silences. Yeah. So <laughs> sometimes one one in particular I can think of. We yeah we we can't say anything for certain. I'm not even insinuating that that's happening. Allegedly, but the, <laughs> the, this is just the process. Is that if the lobbying commissioner were looking at these? and conducting an investigation, we would not know at this point. No. We would not know until she comes forward yeah. with something tangible. Yeah, or the RCMP. So it's tough to be critical of the commissioner's office in the void of knowledge. Yeah. That is, we don't know how she is responding to we showing up with, you know, 15 manila envelopes of communication reports that they're looking to file. Yes. That, and she obviously said, said, like, okay, go ahead and file them. But yeah, the but I we, and, we don't know what the but is, and I think it would perhaps be good. And this is not really a, the crisis of the commissioner because it's it's part of the law that like we move to a more notice based system as with the uh, 
uh, the ethics commissioner might not be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, because so the- there are like these are high profile concerns that come up a lot. Like SNC Lavalin was a similar case because you know there was a there was a clear finding from the ethics commissioner that you know SNC Lavalin had had in, had placed the government uh, and when I said the government, the prime minister, in a conflict of interest. And then it's like, well, part of the lobbying code is that you can't place public office holders in a conflict of interest. So what's going on there? And then radio silence is perhaps not necessarily in the highest public interest. It would be good to get like it, some clarity on that. It's also, I think, the public notice of investigation, I think, is really important. Yeah. Um, insofar as it lets MPs know that they can stop digging in a particular area if sure. they smell <laughs> smoke, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, when the commissioner comes out and says you know i'm on it i'm going to be able to do my investigation i can conduct it in a much more thorough manner than you can i can yeah. interview witnesses more readily yeah etc cetera, etc cetera. then you know mps can let off the gas and say you know this is being taken yes care of elsewhere. As, as happened with the ethics commissioner to um, some extent with but, the snc thing yes and now with the morneau thing and the justin trudeau thing again yeah. and but with the lobbying commissioner it's like you don't know no and yeah, if, exactly if mps are concerned about um, violations of the Lobbying Act, they don't know whether or not they should continue pursuing a parliamentary or a, an investigation via committee, whether yeah. they should keep calling witnesses. Yeah. Because if they don't, no one's going to be looking into this. Exactly. And, and, and like, yeah, that's been a position that I've been in in the past before. And, like, it, it is very awkward because you're kind of left like, well, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, has, has, have I handed off the football to someone? Yeah. Or... Or is this just no one's going to pick fallen it up? and everyone's gone home for the night? Yeah, exactly. So not not super good, but like I said, that's really not a criticism of the commissioner. I think it really is just as it, tr- it's a facet of the law that is different in both of those two cases with conflict of interest and, and lobbying. You know what's fun about the lobbying law? What is fun about it? It's up for review. It is up, well, it's been it's up for review forever. O- it's yeah. long overdue for statutory review. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully eventually. Uh, the other important point I wanted to raise was that uh, if you look on the uh, We Cherry um, registry, like the, their actual uh, like registry entry in the um, what am I what am I saying? The registry of lobbyists. The registry of lobbyists. You will see a, a dozen odd individuals listed as being registered to lobby for that organization. Uh, not among them, notably, are Craig and Mark Kielberger. Tell me why. Why is, why is that the case, So Laurel? if anyone listened to our first episode, uh, no, actually not really, uh, but near our first episode, we, we covered a uh, lobbying commissioner determination. I don't, I don't even think it was close to the first episode. I think it was like the 60th. Okay. Well, at any rate, at some point... Because it came out of the courts. It came out of Duff yes. Conacher's challenge yes. of the Aga Khan decision the federal, to the yeah. federal court. So at any rate, we there was a determination some time ago that... Uh, for the purposes of the Lobbying Act, if you do not draw a salary or are otherwise remunerated by the organization for which you lobby, you are not a lobbyist. So this applied in the Aga Khan's case because there was that whole concern about, you know, the prime minister going to the Aga Khan's island and, oh, is he a lobbyist because his name's on the foundation? And the lobbying commissioner said, no, he's not paid, so he, he can't lobby. Uh, the Kielberger brothers seem to have applied a similar logic to themselves because they are co-founders and volunteers for we charity <laughs> of course these guys don't live like monks i think it's fair enough to say allegedly and uh <laughs> and they do seem to draw a salary from somewhere uh and that somewhere i i suspect is likely the we uh me to we social enterprise yes somewhere in the in web the, of organizations yes. i'm and, sure and they much, are drawing a salary much, this reminds me of the catholic church in the sense that you know, when you're talking about questions of doctrine and orthodoxy, it's the one holy Catholic apostolic universal mother church. <laughs> and then when you're talking about liability from uh, sheltering pedophile it's that priests, priest. it was him. it's like, well, actually, each diocese is its own legal entity. And really, it's just, you know, it's, it's a blah, blah, blah. You can't really talk about blah, blah. It, this strikes me as, you know, when you get Craig and Mark Kielberger up and you talk about the Shell Foundation and they'll get very, very upset. Sir, this is not a Shell Covenant. They'll get very, very upset. Convent. Yes, they'll get very upset with you calling a Shell Foundation and say, well, it's all, it's all one part of the big we family. But then it's like, okay, so why aren't you guys registered to lobby? Ah, oh, well, you see, technically we draw our salary from uh, the Media <laughs> We Social Enterprise and not We Charity, which is the entity that's registered to lobby. And it's like, okay, that's bullshit, man. Like... Come on. You can't have it both ways on that shit. That's unreal, allegedly. Allegedly. 
Um, so I think the the actual court decision, as far as I know, I believe was being challenged by the government, and I don't know where it's gone from there. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what's become of that decision, um, because Duff Conacher successfully got the court yes. to force the reconsideration of yes. the lobbying no, I, commissioner. I think, I think there's a real, real, like, very pertinent legal difference here. Which is that the Aga Khan, I genuinely think, doesn't in any way, like, draw a salary from the Aga Khan Foundation, right? And, like, I, he, he draws a salary from his, or he doesn't. He lives off passive investments, real estate, racehorses, etc. Sure. <laughs> like, he, he, he's a European noble in a very real sense. Um, but these guys, like, draw a salary from an adjacent organization that is, like, controlled by the same people. Like, that, that to me strikes me as a very important legal distinction between those two cases. But I don't know how you legislate to capture well, I don't think one you do. and not the other. No, I don't right? think you do. I think it's this is a question for the lobbying commissioner and for the courts. Like it's just you have to look at like the the kind of the no, facts but, of the situation. But and the, say that it's the lobbying commissioner, one case and not the other. as far as I know, the lobbying commissioner is going to say, you know, it, it all comes down to the definition of remuneration, yeah. right? Yes. Whether or not remuneration is, and this is what it was in the Agacon. Uh, Duff Conacher yeah. case, it was whether or not remuneration is strictly monetary, yeah. or whether a broader definition of non-monetary remuneration, including titles, positions, yes. you know, influence, yeah, and she came down to the point that it was monetary exclusively. But I think that the question here is, and the federal court said no, yes. it should be a broader definition. Yes, but the monetary thing here being that it is monetary compensation, but from an adjacent organization controlled by the same people, and I think that that's a separate legal question and an interesting one but when you pursue it that way my concern is that it becomes merely a question of how the lawyers are able to arrange the controlling sure well okay interests but, but, in x organized like it becomes a very yeah hard to navigate legal way it basically becomes the uh the offshore tax haven yeah sort absolutely. of question no, but i mean that's kind of why the this is why people take issue with labyrinthine webs of organizations to begin with right because it, it yes. if you're acting like you have something to hide right like it's it, it never looks good and like i know these guys have, have wept blood about you know the 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 just the awful things people are saying about the Shell Foundation, right? And it's like, look, you just you cannot have it both ways on this. You cannot have it be, oh, this is you know this is it's just it's a vehicle for liabilities as part of the broader thing, and it's all the same thing. And don't worry about it. It's just all one thing. And like, well, yeah, no, but but for the purposes of, of lobbying, we don't have to register because we don't draw salary. Like, come on. I, I will just add this to the consideration of all the different organizations at hand. Um, it is interesting to note that the organization that registered to lobby is not the one that received the contribution agreement from the government. Yeah, and I think that's somewhat easy to explain in the sense that the entity that is receiving the contract, or sorry, the contribution agreement, has no employees or assets. But, <laughs> but isn't that equally problematic? Well, like, I mean, and this is why, this is the point about like... The, lo the Lobbying Act doesn't really contemplate... Proxy lobbying. Proxy lobbying. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's a weakness of the act, but you could like, what if what if someone were to come and say, you know, oh, we're under the twenty percent rule. I was lobbying fifteen percent via this organization. Yeah. The other fifteen percent, I had my very similar organization that works in the same space. I was, you know, the emails are signed yeah. differently. I was under that organization. The other fifteen percent of the time, like it obviously enters a question of like bad faith yes and i think um, that like the commissioner has some latitude there to make those determinations likely yes um but this is quickly where things sort of go downhill and become very convoluted yeah, well, in this terms is why of... we have like anti-avoidance provisions in most laws right this is like if you basically like 90 percent of laws that regulate some kind of behavior say if you're an asshole about this like you're gonna get the hammer coming sure. on you like and it, for good reason because people will think of like absurd ways to get around things but in this case in the case of the registration, we have an example where yes. one might question whether or not anti-avoidance at play here. Yeah, no, and, and I... Like, allegedly. Allegedly, yes. It is my alleged view that it, that looks... <laughs> that kind of looks like what it is, like, at, for the reasons I've, I've outlined, allegedly. Um, so there you go. That's that's the we thing. Um, we'll see what happens with that, uh, because Parliament is prorogued. Uh, the Finance Committee is still due to get documents at some point. 
Um, so we'll see what comes of that. But yes, that takes us to the other thing. The other thing. Well, one of two other things. So, where to begin on the uh, the sordid saga of Bill Morneau? Yeah, poor uh, poor Bill Morneau. Just uh, you know, it's a hard world. So, I guess the starting point for our purposes should be the Mark Carney stories. I think. I I, I think that's as good of starting point in sort of the recent Morneau history as any. Yes. Um, that the government leaked that they were having sordid conversations with Mark Carney about economics. Um, sordid or just... I, I say that jokingly. Sor- okay, I see. All right. In jest, sir. Very good. Um, I, I, can we but, just pause for a brief second just for listeners who are unaware of who Mark Carney is? Because Mark Carney is someone who everyone in Ottawa knows, but is probably not well known elsewhere. Everyone in Ottawa is very, very excitable yes. about Mark Carney. If they're excitable about a lot of things again. Far, <laughs> far too excitable about Mark Carney. Yes. Uh, so Mark Carney is a former Bank of Canada governor who has since been governor of the Bank of England, which is to say, you know, central bank. Well, before before Bank of Canada, he was a senior civil servant. Yes. Uh, finance, and before that, he was Goldman Sachs. There you go. So, so you know, very very long track record in, in the financial world. Um, and yes, like Bank of Canada and then the Bank of England, two very well regarded central banks. Um, I think his tenure at the Bank of England was broadly well regarded from a policy standpoint, but he. Uh, got into trouble time to time for being quite political, <laughs> especially around the Brexit stuff. He also um, got into trouble from time to time for a million dollar salary that was twice, over twice, I think, that of his predecessor. A 400,000 pound, I imagine, um, housing allowance, uh, inordinate travel expenses. Yes. Like... He was living large. This is... As a, he, was, he was living that, that central banker life. Yes, uh, so at any rate, all that to say, he has you know returned the triumphant native son back to Canada, uh, and you know is writing a book about things that broadly sound, you know, big L liberal, um, um, about how you know green prosperity, blah blah blah, all that stuff. He also um, picked up a job with the United Nations, doing basically that. Yes. So there's a lot of of sound and fury and and chattering about you know the likelihood of of Mark Carney entering politics in some form or another. So yeah, let's. Another piece of history. Um, this is not the first time. No. Uh, once upon a time, it was believed he might run for liberal leadership, um, and it was the the talk of the town. Um, there's an infamous sort of. Are you tell the banknote story? That well, no. Okay. Uh, um, that is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. No, I, I was just gonna say there's a. We'll uh, talk that later. A, an infamous like appearance at the Met in the heat of all of this, where right. he just. You know, schmoozed with the media and they didn't scrum him. What's the Met, Etienne? Uh, the Met is the Metropolitan Restaurant. Brasserie. Brasserie, yeah. There you go. A, a, um, a, the Ottawa spot that has replaced the, the now defunct High Steakhouse as where movers and shakers go to move and shake. Um, but, so, he was, he was unique in his ability, I think, or in his position in terms of how much he mingled socially in Ottawa. I don't think, I mean, I don't know many banks of, or governors of the Bank of Canada. Yeah. Um, but from what I've pieced together over the years, Mark Carney liked to go to parties. He liked to be social. Yeah, and he liked to show up at the Met from time to time. Ottawa parties are not fun. Like, you don't, <laughs> you don't do this because it's a good time. Um, and all of this has led to sort of the development of a chattering class who is very familiar with Mark Carney's um, ambitions and interests in politics. I don't think he's ever been uh, very shy, although he's been coy about them. Yes, I think it's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> well, because, yeah, there, there is a question here about the appropriateness of former central bank governors because, you know, the idea is the central banks are politically independent and, you know, you can... You can Agree or disagree with that, but that Economist is the Economist Stephen Gordon is pointing to this again and again. He's, as, he's doing know, the SimCity guy thing. Dramatically undermining... You will regret this! <laughs> dramatically undermining yeah. uh, confidence in the Bank of Canada, etc. It's sort of like generals shouldn't run for politics in the military. Yeah. Um, whether or not you conflate 
uh, or whether or not you view Supreme Court justices Supreme, constantly appearing as guns Supreme, for hire <laughs> yeah. in various legal cases. Whether or not you view the Bank of Canada on the same level of some of, as some of these other positions is yeah. you know up for debate. Yeah, because there's not that constitutional element to it. It's just a, a policy nicety. Yes, it's sort of a policy. Uh, yeah, because we just decided norm. that we don't want the the poorest to get their hands on too much <laughs> money, so we've made it this political norm that you can't talk about it. I, I, I think it's great. I'm very in favor of it. So anyways, that's the background for basically the... I'm just going to presume PMO. PMO leaking um, into the press that they've been in chit-chats in, with... In formal advisor. With Mark Carney. Yeah. And this also helps to explain why um, early in the pandemic it was announced that the Prime Minister had met with a, a number of economists. Kevin Milligan among them. Friend of the show. Uh, Jennifer Robson among them. Mike Moffat among them. Not friend of the show. <laughs> um, and why these economists did not create the same buzz, the same, yes. you know... Well, out, I think the easy answer of op-eds. Yeah, I, I think the easy answer there, with, with apologies to to our friends Jennifer and and, and uh, Kevin, is that they're they're not, you know, two time, two different country central bank governors. Sure, but it's it's not that with it, a high political profile, etc. No, it's the. Uh, I, don't see, I don't see Kevin at the Met. It, <laughs> it's the insinuation, or not the insinuation, the. I don't know, the background and the ambitions that everyone knows that Carney is holding, right? Yes. And, and that's what created this buzz and led to the penning of some uh, opinion pieces that, you know, you can't do this, you can't consult. No, with, you can't cut from me. You can't consult um, <laughs> with people who are not in your cabinet. You'll regret was, this. Which was yes, rather that ridiculous. that was really bizarre, yeah. Uh, anyways, so Mark Carney comes in. Um, everyone gets all hyped up and says Mark Carney's going to take finance minister. No doubt. Oh, people are still saying this somehow. They're saying like, oh, Christopher Freeland is a temporary appointment. <laughs> Jenna, we're Absolutely not. Yeah. But no, it's just, it's absurd how in their heads people are about this. Um, and this timed with a number of leaks that were under cutting yes. Bill Moore knows rolling and cabinet. and a timely resignation of an MP leading to a by-election in Toronto. C completely unrelated. I know. I'm just saying that these things were conflated in people's yes. minds. Everyone, and now everyone people saw, are saying, oh, well, now he's going to run in Toronto Centre. Everyone like, saw well, he was running in York Centre a week ago. Yeah. Give it a rest. Everyone saw Michael Levitt's resignation um, and were like, oh, Carney's going to run there. It's, it's all but done. And in reality, it could not have been further from the truth. Um, so Bill Morneau starts getting progressive amount of knives in his back in media. Yes. Um, one can only presume that PMO decided, someone decided to start waging a campaign of daggers against him, um, which culminated in some pushback from PMO, sort of someone trying to develop a narrative. Oh, we have full confidence in him. Someone trying to, yeah, a statement from the prime minister that took like seven hours for them to push out and read more <laughs> new, like new phone who dis <laughs> and read <laughs> and read more like a political eulogy than anything else. Yes, um, it, uh, the writing has been on the wall for a few weeks, um, but no one's been sure really how it was going to play out exactly. Um, it led up to the meeting on Monday, the much heralded one-on-one -on -one meeting between the prime minister and more know whether or not they were going to hash out their differences or agree to part ways. Mm -hmm. And it seems uh, they agreed that Morneau would run to be an instructor at Top Gun, <laughs> the, the, the U.S. Navy's top flying, uh, top flying program. Now, to uh, run for OECD Secretary, Secretary General. General. Yes. Um, which is an absolutely laughable campaign. Yes. And all... And I, I, Yes, astute observers of the Twitter feed will will have caught me saying this earlier today, but if he's had direct and significant official dealings with the OECD in the last calendar year of his employment as a public office holder, then he is in contravention of his two-year cooling off period. Which you can bypass with a waiver. You can't um, bypass with a waiver, but, but you got to make your case thing, to all, from the view from from right now and right yes. here is that that seems tough because I suspect he has. Like, but, it seems hard to imagine. Though, that said, I did take a look uh, recently at, at all briefing notes 
uh, from the Department of Finance regarding the OECD, and they were all to Minister Fortier. So lucky, yeah. yeah. She was listed on the most Who recent knows? press release in relation to the OECD a meeting during the so maybe the COVID maybe time. he's been planning this for a while. <laughs> like you know maybe if I, the, I I doubt it, but um, very convenient nonetheless. Extremely yes. Um, our odds of winning that seat are virtually nil, so it was a uh, a yes. rather bad choice. Um, but it gives him something to do for the next year. Which, you know, idle hands. Um, what more is there to say about the Bill Morneau saga? But I think the insistence by a lot of people in taking the spin about deep policy differences quite seriously was a bit silly. Yes. The nature of being a cabinet minister, unless, yeah. unless you say nothing in cabinet meetings, yeah. you are constantly at the source of some level of policy disagreement. Yeah. Unless you're the most sycophantic cabinet minister known to man. Which, it, it, like, in some fairness, it does seem like most of this cabinet is. Um, true. But <laughs> I'm sure there are arguments around the cabinet table nonetheless. Sure. Um, but it's really nice and it's always a very easy out for staff to reference these disagreements around the cabinet table. Yeah. As if they were, you know, this wide gulf that was these irreconcilable differences sort of after the fact. Yeah. Like, oh, why is he leaving now? Oh, well, they had their... I can give you ten things they disagreed with at cabinet meetings in the last year. It's like... I'm sure you can, right? Sure, it's like, so yeah. what? And, like, and every everyone, minister has those. And every cabinet minister is aware that ultimately there is one vote at the cabinet table. Yes. And it's the prime minister's. Right? You, mean, like, you mean it's consensus. <laughs> Everything is consensus-based. Yeah. No, it's like there is a clear... It's not even a first among equals thing. It's just like the prime minister is... To, to quote George uh, W. Bush, the decider. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, well, not this one. I mean, he has people for that. <laughs> but, you know, in theory. <laughs> the staff are the deciders. Um, yeah, so a lot of it struck me, and like, no doubt there have been stories of um, tens no, and, and tensions also, between the Prime Minister's office and the Finance and, Minister's office yeah. going, going back years and it's easy to, for me various to imagine, degrees. It's easy for me to imagine that Justin Trudeau whose job history before being an MP is not much, and Bill Morneau, whose job history before being an MP was, you know, a a relatively high-profile Bay Street adjacent job. Running a small family business. Running a small family business, indeed, that he inherited, basically. Uh, is that, like, yeah, like, I think, of course, there's going to be some differences in perspective there. But at the same time, it's like, the guy was happy enough to do, what, like, five budgets? Four budgets for this guy? Like... It seems like it wasn't the end of the world before. Like, there's no shortage of them, of pictures of them, like, you know, six inches apart, smiling <laughs> into each other's eyes and, and making big heart hand things <laughs> next to each other. And, like, it's just, like, it, come on. Like, it's basically what I'm saying here. Yeah. Come on, man. It, it's hard for that to be your position as, you know, these very genuine policy disagreements. And then you see Morneau go out the way he did. Yeah, and it's like... If, it's, if it Morneau seems... went out on a little bit more of a, a blaze of glory, um, then yeah, I, I can see, like, things reached a tipping point. Yeah. Morneau was like, I'm not going to listen to this kid anymore. Yeah. I'm out of here. Not the... And now the government will support me as I campaign to become... Yeah. The instructor of Top Gun no, it... and a Tom Cruise <laughs> lookalike. It, it does... Really, I think like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think it's if you believe the spin on this, you're just you're not thinking very hard. Like I, call, I think it's pretty call, call sign tater tot. <laughs> I, think it's, yes. I think it's pretty obvious that Morneau had basically been nothing but a political liability. Like he's never been a political plus for this government, except as I've said before, in that he he signals to people on Bay Street that there is someone of their social class, and you know guild in in the halls of power right like that's what he was there to do and eventually his usefulness as that was outweighed by his political liability by you know i think there was to, to kind of go in chronological order and i'm going to miss some uh forgetting to file uh with the ethics commissioner a disclosure about his numbered company that owned his villa in france there was then Bill C-27, which got a lot of the unions really steamed, and it was about pension changes, basically, to allow retroactive changes to uh, defined contribution pensions. Basically, very boring, but got a lot of people very steamed. Um, and then, of course... The small business tax changes were managed small business incredibly tax changes, poorly. That's a really good point. I'd forgotten about that one. And then, because I don't care about small businesses, obviously. Uh, that Allegedly, that's a joke. I love small businesses. Um, and then, of course... Uh, 
telling the ethics commission the ethic or sorry the finance committee that he'd just repaid a forty one thousand three hundred sixty six dollar check to we for uh expenses incurred in travel let's we not forget how his staff were involved in snc as well um yeah if, just not like if just, i were to think I, for I a few more like, minutes yeah i'm sure we i, I could come up with a but lot you know of I other can't examples. think of anything is like times where i've been like wow it was really good politically that bill morneau was part of this government at that point because it's just like i cannot think of one no there was never any standout moments for him um and i think like, wow he really stick handled that file well like so no. morneau was a little bit between a rock and a hard place the the kevin carmichael um sort of obit or uh column in the i believe it's the financial post that's where he writes yes um of him is good, and I do recommend you read it. And it talks about, like, Morneau's sort of frame of mind being like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to play the first four years as, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play along for the first four years. And then afterwards, I'm going to run again, and then I'm going to sort of break out of my shell. And I'm going to start throwing my weight around. I know how the town works. I know how things are going to go. Um, and maybe that's what happened, but it sure seems like he got shut down before that could ever happen. Yeah. He lost all of the fights, um, all of the policy disagreements that were recounted in the press over the past two to four weeks, whatever it's been now. Mm -hmm. um, he constantly was getting staff assigned to him via PMO. Yeah. Um, he, like, finance is an incredibly um, hard-headed department, and it's tough to run because you have to push back against your own department. You have to push back against all the other ministers yeah. um, who want yeah, you're money fend, you're money fending, for everything. You're fending everyone off with a pike. And if, and if you're constantly getting overruled by PMO, like, you are absolutely powerless. Yeah. And that is ultimately the position Bill Morneau was in. And then you lump in him getting thrown under the bus by PMO and his own transgressions in terms of uh, misdisclosures, et cetera, et cetera. It, it makes for a very toxic combination. And I don't doubt that Morneau was ready to go. Um, I don't doubt that Morneau, you know, went to the prime minister and said, fuck this, I'm out. Um, how could he not, after being undercut in the press by the prime minister's office, allegedly, yeah. um, <laughs> for weeks? Like, yeah. it's sending a very clear signal that the prime minister no longer has confidence in you, despite his seven-hour uh, seven late reassurance that he does. Yes. Um... It is kind of funny to watch these press conferences where they're like, but, uh, when the Prime Minister said you suck, uh, like, what should we make of that? And he's like, well, you know, I don't think the Prime Minister said I suck. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, he, he, he said of, He yeah. said I was terrible. <laughs> no, the, the worst part of it for me is just the, the alibi here. The alibi is so... I mean, they call it, so they call it saving bad. face for a reason, Etienne. It's never but, very plausible. It just has to be good enough to pass, like... Some kind of... Literally anything would have been better than this OECD cover story. Literally anything. Yeah, World Bank. There um, go. No, it just didn't have to be anything. <laughs> Bill Morneau could just walk away and go back to Bay Street and go back to running. Morneau Chappelle in a low-key way. And that's it. And, yeah. and he could go back to Toronto and have been the finance minister and have a very comfortable... Life. On I, base. I'm announcing my bid today for the United Nations Security Council on, on Bay Street, <laughs> and instead, he is going to be roped into a one-year another quixotic campaign that will end in failure. Yeah, it's yeah. audit. I think it's really funny. Absolutely <laughs> bewildering. Yeah. Um, so the Freeland side of this is interesting uh, because, uh, oh, first of all, we're saying uh, if you don't count the. Uh, Mona Forte's 12-hour stint as acting <laughs> finance minister, uh, which, you know, I don't want to take it away from her, but at the other hand... The Kim Campbell of the finance minister portfolio. On the other hand, portfolio. I think uh, maybe we want to take it away from her, uh, that uh, Christopher Freeland is Canada's first female finance minister. It's not not nothing. Correct. Yes. Um, Christia Freeland, the minister of everything. I think a lot of people were hesitant to pick um, Christia Freeland on their lottery ticket it just seemed too obvious right for for many for many folks i think a lot of people were of the view that it was like poor political analysis to pick the obvious choice yeah well, and instead they were like no i'm going to pick the president of the treasury yes. board that few people are aware of yes. this wonky quebecer economist who is likely to lead the government's financial recovery and it's like 
No, obviously they're not going to pick him. They're obviously going to pick Christia Freeland. Yeah, so... Like, and, she, she's picked it out. She has measured the drapes. Yes. The drapes are already... They're coming. Yes. Like, they're working on her timeline, really. Indeed. And, and in my defense, because I, I am a person who thought Duclos was a fairly likely pick. Though I never I never counted Freeland out, and I always thought she was a very likely choice as well. Um, For like, me, it was always either Freeland, top yes. tier, or, like, Any, Friendship Caucus. Any member of yeah. Friendship Caucus doesn't Seamus matter. Seamus O'Regan! You've got the... <laughs> Mary Ng, Seamus O'Regan, Mark Miller, anyone in Friendship Caucus was number two. Yeah. Because that's uh, always a safe bet. That yeah, You're right. Uh, Duclo, I thought, just would have been a solid choice, but I, I should have been thinking less in who would be good at this job and more in, like, what actually makes political sense. So. Who are they friends with? Yes, a very important thing. Which, um, turns out, uh, a member of Friendship Caucus also got the bump up to Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. Blanc, I would say the Ur member of Friendship Caucus. The what? The, the, like, the, the, the OG original <laughs> member of Friendship Caucus. Jesus, yes. read a book, dude. The, uh, the babysitter. Yes, indeed. Um, Quite literally, for people who are unaware, he had, when uh, Romeo LeBlanc, Dominic's father, was governor general... And Pierre Trudeau, Justin's father, if you're unaware, was a prime minister. <laughs> uh, Dominic would babysit Justin. Um, and so Dominic, uh, in his own right, a very uh, successful and talented politician, I would say. Yep, and, and a big deal in liberal politics. Like it's in worth liberal politics yep. and East Coast politics. Yes. The, the godfather of New Brunswick. Um, what I would say is, and so he's been battling uh, cancer recently. Yes. Um, but he's doing markedly better um hence his sort of re-entry he was given sort of a placeholder position as president of the uh privy council yeah yeah is is that the title president president of the privy council um a placeholder position where he wasn't doing a ton but it was sort of like a dog-eared when when you're ready we'll take you yeah um and he's that's clearly now but Intergov's sort of a weird choice for him. Yeah, well, um, he's he, a bit of a political street fighter. He was House Leader was his first job in this government, and the other parties couldn't work with him. Like he he is a extremely partisan guy. From like New Brunswick politics is extremely partisan and it's very tribal, um, and it it's not a place where you learn how to play well with others. Uh, maybe some time you know in government has has softened that edge on him. Uh, he's had other portfolios since. Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see, especially because Christopher Freeland, I think, had earned a lot of plaudits for her very conciliatory approach. Here's he, he, let me let me draw a comparison here. Sure. When Christia Freeland left Foreign Affairs, she took with her the single biggest uh, file. Yes. AKA the United States, um, and then gave Champagne the leftovers. Yes, and we've called her the Katamari Dumasi minister <laughs> for this reason. Um, I'm very tempted to draw. A similar analogy here that Christia Freeland, by all accounts, has done a tremendous job ingratiating herself with all of the conservative premiers and, across and the country. In particular, Doug Ford, I think it, uh, it bears I, saying. I would actually say, in particular, Jason Kenney. I would say Doug Ford just for the public facingness of how willing he is to say nice things about her to newspapers. Sure. Just because that is quite astonishing. Uh, but. I, I think, I, I'm sure there are good regulatory reasons to I, I say... Think, I think the more Christia. significant relationship is her relationship with uh, Jason Kenney. Well, I think there's a much deeper ideological hatred between the Alberta UCP and the federal liberals than there is between the federal liberals and the Ontario PCs. Yes. Yes. And, and you know, the budding Wexit and the yes. Western alienation, I think, is a lot has been a lot higher on the agenda as well as the, uh, the energy industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They're all a lot more salient issues than anything the federal government has going on with yes. Ontario at this and, point in In a time. sense, it's like being able to turn down the temperature on the Alberta sort of simmering blood feud yeah. is more significant than like getting Doug Ford to say nice things about you. Yes. I would and, say and that's to why... get Doug Ford to say nice things about you is more visible and it is more striking. And, but and, I agree with you that the Alberta thing is probably more significant. And Jason Kenney, as the ideological leader of all the of the prairies... I mean, <laughs> the well, the Canadian, Canadian right and really. all of the prairies... Yeah. Um, ...makes that relationship much more significant. Um, and this is where I see the the uh, the relation... Or the... Uh, yeah, the relationship is analogous to that with uh, Champagne. Is that Dominic LeBlanc is not going to be 
eagerly welcomed into premier's offices across Western no. Canada. Like he's just not, he's not the guy for that job. Freeland is the one who's going to be welcomed in and she's still deputy premier. Yeah. So I, or sorry, yes, deputy prime minister. So I think it's likely that she maintains her sort of finger in the pie. And by that, I mean three quarters of the pie when dealing with the provinces. Speed dial to Doug Ford and Jason Kenney. I think there's a real, a very real risk that Dominic LeBlanc becomes the intergovernmental affairs minister to Eastern Canada. Yeah, the, the Maritimes in Quebec and possibly BC. Um, yeah, maybe, every, maybe <laughs> everyone maybe. else. Yeah. Um, so I think she may have scooped him on the most important files on that in that agenda or in that portfolio, rather. Yeah, and I think that, that speaks somewhat to the low-profile Quebec issues have had in that, like he will take over the Quebec thing and it will not be a big deal when like historically that is, that is the big one. Yeah. Uh, and I think that just speaks to like how much detente there has been between uh, the provincial and federal governments there uh, over the last little while. Um, yeah. I, I think that you're right though. I think that yes, the, the Katamari Damasi minister will continue to, uh, to roll over smaller objects and absorb them into her, her big pile. There is of course a question of how much capacity one person can have but uh as of as of today we have yet to hit that threshold no and i i think we've seen with uh the, the four-year experiment of, of running the federal government off one man's cell phone is that it, in <laughs> fact it can go pretty high uh whether that's sustainable is a different question but uh yes yes um anything else about the freeland promotion um i mean not really i i think like no, yeah, I, I think that's basically it. That, that is really significant. I, I think her, she's not the most progressive person in that cabinet, I think it's no, fair to say. No, I, uh, I think it's, she's comfortably on the, the, the center-right center right flank. Which is funny, because and I think it maybe it's worth talking about this very, very shortly, is that you know her big splash into politics was that she wrote, she's a journalist and she wrote Plutocrats, which is a book about how um, you know the super rich are, you know, the sort of, the sort of uh, vaguely self... It, look, it didn't say anything that you won't hear at a vaguely self-flagellating panel at Davos, but it said it, right? Um, and that was something. And she talked about the, the importance of inequality and all that, and, like, great, I, I agree. But, yeah, I think her tenure in government has been much less about that kind of stuff than her sort of uh, selling points to Justin Trudeau in 2012 or whenever it was, I guess. I think it was 2014. Um, when she joined the yeah, Liberal Party. Yeah. yeah. My, it just haven't been as salient as one would have expected. So I, I don't think it's... I, I don't really know who, if anyone is saying this, but maybe people are thinking it, that uh, you know she's going to be a, a big progressive contrast to Morneau. I, I really don't see that as at all likely, I guess. No, and certainly I, on foreign policy, she was uh, no friend of... Uh, which, which makes for an interesting counterpoint to the... More no policy disagreement yeah, exactly. side of things. It's that she's like, just brought in and ideologically, she was probably the member in cabinet who was most ideologically similar to Morneau. Yes, uh, but bye bye, honey. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is gone, and one of them isn't. So. Indeed. Uh, okay, so that takes us to that brings us to today. Having now talked about yesterday and the last week. Well, some of that was today. Sure, I guess so. Uh, yeah, you're right. Actually. It was this uh, morning. So now we're caught up to about 10 a.m. this morning. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so at about... Take us into the afternoon. At about 4 o'clock, I guess. A yes. little, maybe a little before. Uh, Parliament was prorogued uh, until uh, September 23rd. By our benevolent space overlord. Ah, the space queen. We love her. Oof. Uh, great optics. Very good optics to have the... Uh, as I joked on Twitter... Bill Moore, uh, not Bill Moore, no, Bill Blair chasing her down with a butterfly net. Indeed. To get her into Rideau Hall in yes. order to swear in new ministers. Um, Speaking of Bill Blair, there was a settlement. Uh, I know. For a lot of the of articles. For, and no one talked about it. A lot it. of the articles did not mention Bill Blair in them. Yeah. Um, amazingly. So, prorogation of parliament, what does it mean? What does it not mean? Um, let me get the cursory parliamentary. Well, it's, it's something that Sauron does out of the to... way. <laughs> Prorogation is a tool, and whether it's good or bad depends on how the tool is used. Yes. Um, that being said, this is a horrible use of prorogation. Yeah, <laughs> so it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of point to it. So, okay. Prorogation, 
it basically like it, it it put it clears parliament it says okay everyone everyone get out this is more than just us rising like it's it's done for now we're gonna come back and when we come back we're gonna have a big speech about how cool things are yes um and it yeah so there will be a throne speech upon the government's return which it sounded like was the plan anyway so it seemed that there would have been at least a pro forma prorogation uh, to have a new throne speech, which, you know, fair yeah. enough. And, and I mean, that makes sense. Yes. The government is in a process of sort of a reset of, you know, the shambles of their policy agenda from uh, yes. the winter because it was all derailed by COVID yeah. and them not composing a government and in it, any I think conceivable timeline. fair to say, though, and I, I guess we'll circle back to this, because I think what some people have said about this prorogation, which is quite long, it's over a month, there are active committee hearings going on. Like, Parliament is working. There are things happening. Uh, there are, you know, bills on the order paper. There are questions on the order paper. There's, you know, three committees looking at the government's, you know, big scandal, which I think probably was a contributing factor. There's, there's also an international pandemic with yes. huge amounts of spending going out the door. The, perhaps the need to reconvene Parliament on a dime. Which to, has happened several times. To modify yes. existing legislation, yes. to create new spending programs, etc. All of that you can do... If it's just not sitting. If you don't yes. prorogue Parliament. Yes. So what people have said um, is that, you know, well, they need to have a throne speech because obviously there needs to be a reset of the agenda. And I think we've just said that to some extent that's totally legitimate. That said, from 2015 to, uh, you know, October 2019, world events continued to happen. Notably the election of Donald Trump, Brexit, like a bunch of other stuff. Like, it, you know, the things happened uh, and the government at no point felt it was necessary to have a new throne speech to continue. But it, that, so, yes, but that was reasonably unusual. Yeah, no, and it was in fact um, the very first time yes. that it happened in a, a full-length majority uh, government. This government campaigned literally on not abusing prorogation. The, <laughs> 2015, the, the, yes. uh, the prorogation Page 30 powers. of the 2015 liberal platform, if you're curious. Um, but as soon as it's convenient for them in yes. a minority government, which is where it's more useful than in a majority government, which yeah. is likely why the tool was not used. Indeed. Because what did you have to shut down no, no, in a no, majority look, parliament, I, I, I right? I agree with you that like there are obviously practical and political reasons for them to want to do this. I'm just saying that they have very little to do with the need to have a, a deep think about changes in the world, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that is the tactic I would see. I just, yeah, it, it's obviously a cynical political move. Yeah, okay, like, yeah. That's, that, that's it. That's, <laughs> that is the start and the end of the story. Prorogation can be used responsibly. You can use it as a reset to have a speech from the throne to have sort of an initial confidence vote on a new direction and to find a partner, to force finding yes. a partner who's going to support your policy agenda going into the fall yes, and, and budget and, and, and think, all of these things. And I think that that is, in fact, like, it's totally legitimate for this government at this point in its mandate, having run an election on something that doesn't look like a lot of the agenda. Th that now, completely doesn't say, matter anymore. Hey, let's, let's get that fresh confidence vote. Fine. It's the shutting it down for over a month beforehand when there was really literally no need to do so uh, is the, the part that is annoying. Yes. And opportunistic. Um, yes, what, like 100%. And it also just, you know, when if, if you're in the PMO and you're weighing the pros and cons of this decision, you're thinking, okay, pros, we shut down committee, we avoid parliamentary scrutiny, we lop off order paper questions. Cons, we look dictatorial. For the second time during this uh, pandemic. For, we look opportunistic. Yeah. Um, we're going back on our word. We are... What else, what else do you want to add to that? I mean, I think it covers a lot of the group. Those are, those are the main ones. Yeah. Right? And you're weighing those, and who are the people coming out on... Jamrock Twitter. <laughs> who, who are the people coming out and saying, yeah, this this is the right course forward. We can't and, wait. And the sock. Such, such Canadian luminaries. We as. can't wait 30 more days. Yeah. Um, sort of ridiculous and does call into question judgment of those in PMO and sort of the, not bunker, but the uh, trench mentality or the foxhole mentality that they feel like they're in. Yeah. That they feel the need that they're so spooked by what's going on in Parliament, which to some degree, is a lot more innocuous now than it was previous, I think than it was like two weeks I ago. I think they're through the worst of it, yeah. It seems like they're out of it, but they still feel the need to shut things down. Yeah. Um, rather stunning. 
And, I mean, most Canadians won't view it this way, but when you look at it over the track record of this past year and how much governing we've had over a past year, how much parliamentary time there has been in the last calendar year, it's abysmal this year. Yeah, well, I mean, for one largely obvious reason, but yes. But the election. Yeah. But then, and I, I've said this and a dozen this times million, on yeah, here. We've said this a million you times. go into a government that was utterly unprepared to yeah. govern post winning the election. It took them forever to get the government booted up. Yeah. You know, they eventually boot up the government in like February. It immediately gets derailed a month later by COVID. Yeah. Well, first by uh, the sort of like February big protests. And then by COVID, like weeks after that. And then you take COVID through to June. And then all of a sudden. Parliament's not sitting there. They didn't feel the need to push Parliament much through the summer, mm-hmm. and then now we're shutting it down towards the end of the summer for a you know a gratuitous month, and it just strikes you that this is a, baker, a government a baker's month, if you will. <laughs> that this is a government that just doesn't like to actually govern. They have an ambitious policy agenda that they'll tell you about. Yeah, but when it comes to actually putting pen to paper and getting the work done. They're not very interested in it. And I will say this for conservatives is that like... They just don't care. I will say this for conservatives is they are very motivated when they come in. Like the Alberta government since it's come in has passed all kinds of just like ludicrously draconian legislation about all kinds of things that is just like you look at it and you're like, what? And they just do it. And like they don't care that people are mad. They just they just go ahead and do it. It's sort of the opposite of what's going on in the United States right now, where in the U.S. the Republicans have no discernible policy agenda. Well, no, that's not. I, I would disagree with that in the sense that they they were on like a complete mad dash until they got the tax cuts through. Well, yes, but that was like, a while ago. But that and was now... also enormously transformative. And then they lost the House, right, which was also enormously. But there was deal. you know Obamacare was high on the two list, and they just yes. couldn't do that. And well, then they got the tax cuts, and yeah. then just. Nothing. And well, there's, there's, there's been a, tons there's, of stuff in the kind of the regulatory administrative state, like sure, on the executive side. Yes. And you're right, in terms there's, of landmark pieces of legislation. And there's still no vision for it. Yes. There's no vision for anything to yes. be done. And that, I think, speaks to somewhat like just Congress has proven completely unable to do anything for the past dozen years. But which part, is of, why part of that there's is because an imperial presidency. they don't, like the Republican side of Congress just isn't all on the same page, doesn't have a concrete yeah. policy agenda, they're not all pulling in the same direction. Um, and that's not the problem in Canada. No. The problem seems to be that the Liberal government just... Eh, they weren't very effective at getting it, uh, at passing legislation in their first term. No, and we talked a lot about their, term. their bad stick handling of bills. Yeah. They gave the House leader's position to uh, first... A political street fighter who mangled no it. friends, yes. And then to a political neophyte who has turned into a a sycophant who doesn't, like, seems to not have the respect of her counterparts. That and it's a problem at that point. And who is it even now? It's Chagger still, isn't it? No, Chagger is Minister of Diversity and Inclusion. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, who is it now? I don't uh, know because we barely had a yeah, I guess so. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll look that up while you continue to work through your thoughts. Uh, no, so it's just like, I don't know, like, the government is ostensibly talking about building back better, right? Yes. The Jerry Butts report came out that had one vision of building back better, a very unambitious... Pablo, it's Pablo, Pablo Rodriguez, formerly of uh, the Heritage Department, among other things. Yes. So it's just like, I mean, we'll see. This will be the... Ultimate test. Sorry, we were having some intern issues here this evening that are, getting, are different than the usual. Getting intern right issues. in front of the microphone. He's very, very cuddly. Um, we'll we'll see if they're able to, you know, produce anything. Yeah. Um, you know, creating a visionary policy agenda well, is they, not something that you can do overnight, no, and it's and not it's, something I have witnessed this government this is capable of doing. This government wanted to do that since 2015, right? And we had the, the Barton growth, uh, Finance Minister's Growth Council. We've had the superclusters thing. We've had all these big things on innovation, and just, like, nothing has fucking happened. No. Like, not, the Barton not, thing, they did a couple things, but, like, hasn't really been transformative, and I think largely because it's just, like, McKinsey Pablum that is just, like, the, recycled the two, from everywhere else. The two most significant things that I can think of, um, 
Let's just go through a few of them. Like cannabis legalization, big picture, ex- executed, <laughs> executed <laughs> very, very poorly. Yeah. Well, and yeah, there, um, there were some statistics that came out on their pardons piece oh, a little horrible. bit ago that were just like abysmal. Handed all the power to the provinces, um, and then they were responsible to take it from there, and it yeah. all sort of fell apart at the provincial level. Yes. Um, like, what's next? Democratic reform. Yeah, democratic reform, yeah. Huge, huge vision for democratic reform. Yeah. Last government... The Senate stuff kind of worked, like, in that it's not, like, a headline embarrassment all the time. Like, but obviously it has some teeth None of problems. that was hard to do. No, it no, was no just, look, like... I, I'm not saying that, like, that was necessarily the hard part of it, but no, they, like, they backed down electoral reform, which is obviously the big one. They, they um, just picked a different stripe of partisan, like, yes, uh, yeah, minor. Yes. Um... The carbon tax is the carbon tax above all others is probably where they've sunk the most political capital. Yes, and I think there, like, is has it worked? I think like it's done what it says on the tin, right? Which is like kind of marginally reduce emissions. I think has it cost them a ton of political capital? Yes, like it's been. It has not been a cost-effective fight for them politically. I think I'd put it that way. Yeah, I. I mean, I think you. Had you done something that reduced emissions by a comparable amount by regulation? Um, no, but this is what the economist said was smart, Jan. By we regulation, you would have lost a lot less political capital. In yep. fact, there is a proposal working its way through to do, I mean, twice as much as the uh, the consumer carbon tax. And, like, no one knows, no one is familiar with it for exactly that reason. Yes. The, um, uh, what's it called? OBBS? OBPS. OBPS. Output-based pricing pricing system. Yes. OBPS, yeah. Um, And, like, no one's aware of that. Anyways, so the point is, there hasn't been that much, like... You know, if you're a liberal partisan, you're putting your hat on, you're going to oh, come out... Oh, they're all with... screaming right now, by the way. They're all screaming Canada Child Benefit. And it's like, cutting checks isn't hard. Sorry. Like, I, I'm glad you guys did it, but it was not hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like and, it, and it's not hard. And it's total failure. And it was basically <laughs> something that had multi-partisan support. It wasn't yes. it like... It was not a hard one, guys. Get over it. Uh, and, and I'm sure others would, you know, every department has its long laundry list of yeah. political achievements. But, like, at the end of the day, a lot of... Not a lot of them are, like really move the yes. needle the, and we've talked a bit and we've talked a lot in the past about how deliverology turned out to just be a complete flop and i think this kind of speaks to that is that they they really don't seem able to deliver on things yeah yeah so we'll see what their big their big rebuild looks like i guess um i i think it's for, probably fair the, to say neither of us are particularly optimistic yeah the, the i mean let, let me just pick on the butts report for just a moment so Jerry Butts went away, um, developed a team of like-minded individuals, the Resilience Council, I can't remember Sure, why called. not? Um, the Jerry Butts team, um, and they produced a report. They produced a report with five bold moves. Um, they're not that interesting. They're not that bold. They're not... It, they envision $50 billion of spending over five years. Which is $10 billion a year for people who are enumerated. Yes. Which is not that much money. <laughs> With over half of that going to, like, physical building changes. Yes, like retrofits. Retrofits, yeah. etc. Um, and which, some going to electric vehicles. Which is a... Which I think it's $7 billion over 10... Or, sorry, over five years to electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. No talk about, sort of, new cities, green infrastructure... Or mass transit things like it's all just it all seems very small peanuts. Yes. One one of the bold moves is a billion dollars over five years. Woo! In who that that's what uh, the superclusters were yeah, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's not a bold transformative move in the post-COVID world. No, and I think like, like genuinely, if, if this like, is what disaster liberalism looks like, like it is wholly underwhelming. Well, and it's also, it's insufficient, right? Like, I think, you know, and, and this is... Or, like, maybe underwhelming is the wrong word. Just, like, unambitious or uninteresting or... It looks a lot like non-disaster liberalism, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that's sort of it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's worrying because I, I think, you know, everyone can read, read charts as well as the next man. It's like you look at, you know, where, where climate's expected to kind of go in the next 15, 20, and you see... Usually when we, when we talk about timelines, we're, we're beating them rather than coming to them late um like peat fires in siberia this year which are you know we weren't expecting to see for for decades 
uh, uh, the collapse of the last complete ice shelf in the Canadian Arctic and, and that sort of thing. It, it's just, you look at these things and you worry and you think, does anyone really have a plan for this? And it, like, it, it doesn't seem like that is the case when it comes to government anywhere. And that's not great. I think we are, there was a, I'm, I'm going a little off topic here, but it was a great book written a couple years ago by a Cambridge historian, David Runciman, called The Confidence Trap, which is about how democracies uh, stumble through problems. And then because they've stumbled through problems, they assume that they can stumble through every problem. And like eventually, you you know, it only takes one, as the IRA famously said to, uh, or you don't have to get unlucky once, I guess, to reverse what they said to Margaret Thatcher. Um, COVID in the United States is sort of an example of this it, right now. The whole sort of Trump administration, I think, is an example of, of like, it just doesn't take much because people are very complacent about institutions' capacity to muddle through problems because they've muddled through problems before. But it's like, there's no guarantee that, like, you know, we live in an advanced industrial civilization with, like, unimaginable comforts, unimaginable to our ancestors. And, like, there just isn't a guarantee that that has to be the case forever. And I think, like, you need to think really hard about that and, like, the implications of that, that there's just no guarantee that the future continues to improve in terms of people's quality of life. And I think once you start thinking in that lens, it becomes a lot easier to think about, like, okay, what do we actually need to change here? But I think there was a very implicit assumption on the part of, like, the vast majority of people in our democracy, including the government, that, like, fundamentally, you know, you're going to hit little bumps on the road, but it's all fine and, like, it'll all be good. But, like, you know... Sometimes it's not good. So to scale that down from sort of the, the macro level, a little more micro, you can sort of see the same thing in like when you're becoming government. Yeah. Everyone sort of plans for the best case scenario of like, you know, I have four years ahead of me. That's a long time. Here's, here's, <laughs> that's a long time. Here's how I'm going to lay out my agenda. You know, yeah. year one, we're going to do this. Year two is going to be this. Year three, Infrastructure year four. Week. <laughs> and it's all going to work seamlessly and everything's going to go fine. Yeah. And this year in particular is an example of that. Like yeah. the Trudeau government hadn't appointed anyone really um, didn't have functional ministers' offices when uh, the Iranians were striking U.S. bases in the Middle East. Yeah. Or a U.S. base in uh, Iraq. Then COVID struck and they'd only been around for... Uh, like a couple a of weeks. Month, yeah, a couple of basically. weeks. Basically, like, like in the again, six to eight weeks territory. Again, yeah. barely functional. Um, in between those two things were the rail blockades. Yeah. And again, the government was caught flat-footed on all these things. Like those are three major, major world events that happened in the first three months of their government. Three months of the government. Well, effectively, because they yeah, obviously the election was in October, but, but, but they didn't have a functional government until January. But, but they opted to squander <laughs> yeah. months after the election because you know there was nothing in the agenda. There was nothing. You know, it's fine. I looked at my my Outlook calendar and my computer and. Everything's going to be fine. We can take it off. The civil servants will be here in January, and we'll get going in January. There you we'll to, to we'll enjoy, figure things out. Enjoy we the just, holidays, folks. We just worked a tough campaign. Um, I want some vacation time, and uh, that's how it goes. But it's like, no, you're, you're running a G7 economy. Like, shit is going to happen. You have yeah. to be prepared for these things. And it turns out you don't have the luxury of... Hell, if you're running the Moldovan economy, you can't really <laughs> afford to just take, like, a month and a half off. Like... <sighs> anyway, very frustrating. Um, that'll probably do it for us this evening. Yes, unless you got anything else. No, nope, that's it. That's all. Very good. Uh, well, that yeah, that'll do it for us tonight. You can of course follow us at always at Pod on Twitter, uh, where you can get the the raw uh, the raw shit, the raw intelligence uh, straight from the horse's mouth from both of us in a confusing unsigned format <laughs> uh, that people love. People love it. Uh, yeah. Good. Anyway, that's it. Did, did you see that? Bill Morneau might be related to the Gronk people. Bye-bye! <laughs> <laughs>